Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we plant the seeds of weird and wonderful science directly into your imagination. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this episode, we return to the weird physics of space drives and anti-gravity. You'll hear Professor Geraint Lewis from 2015 speaking about the Arcubier warp drive, anti-gravity and the EM drive. And Dr. Tim Baines from 2003 with the strange story of the vanishing anti-gravity scientists. But first up, here's news of the American Navy's patent for a high-frequency gravitational wave generator. Gravity. Last week I explored the faster than light space drive patented for the US Navy by Dr. Salvatore Cesar Pais. I explained that the mechanism depended on generating high frequency gravitational waves. This week I'll focus on his next patent for a high frequency gravitational wave generator. Low frequency gravitational waves were first observed by astronomers in 2015 and announced in 2016, coming from rotating black holes crashing into each other. The astronomers used the Laser Interferometry Gravitational Wave Observatory, LIGO, to detect the gravitational waves. Gravity waves squeeze and stretch air, water and earth, while gravitational waves squeeze and stretch space-time. High-frequency gravitational waves have not been detected yet. In 2008, the Pentagon's top scientific advisory board, Jason, declared that high-frequency gravitational wave-based weapons were never going to happen, and therefore there was no threat to the US from foreign governments developing such technology. In 2010, Dr. Robert Baker of the GravWave Company gave a talk to the 7th Annual American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics Southern California Aerospace Systems and Technology Conference, titled Utilization of High-Frequency Gravitational Waves for Aerospace Systems and Technology. The GravWave Company exclusively researches military applications for high-frequency gravitational wave generators. Baker lists several military uses. If you could convert light waves into gravitational waves and beam them across the solar system, then you have a way for spacecraft to send messages that can pass through objects without being blocked or suffering interference. Using this method on Earth, there would be no need for satellites, relays, optic fibres or wires. You could beam messages straight through the Earth. You could spy on people straight through the Earth. You could also move things with high-frequency gravitational waves just as been imagined with science fictional tractor beams. You could trigger detonations remotely, including other people's bombs and nuclear weapons. 
Dr. Baker suggested that the Pentagon should wait until high-frequency gravitational waves had been detected before they denounce military applications. The Navy's gravitational wave generator patent is similar to the space drive I described last week, but it has important differences. It was filed a year later. In addition to a cavity and high-intensity high-frequency microwave emitters, the device relies on sound emitters too. This time, there's a cavity filled with a gas, and two more cavities, each also filled with gas. The first cavity has an outer shell surface that is electrically charged and vibrated by the microwave emitters to generate a first electromagnetic field. The second gas-filled cavity has a surface that is also electrically charged and that surface is vibrated by acoustic emitters, speakers. These vibrations generate a second electromagnetic field. The two cavities are able to counter-spin relative to each other. When the second electromagnetic field propagates through the first electromagnetic field, then due to the Gertzenstein effect, which has yet to be demonstrated to be true, gravitational waves are generated. The Gertzenstein effect states that light waves passing through a strong magnetic field will cause wave resonance that will generate gravitational fields. In the patent, Pais suggests gravitational waves could be used to disrupt and disintegrate asteroids. He says, The enablement of macroscopic quantum coherence induced by controlled motion of charged matter subjected to rapid acceleration transients, that is, the device's generation of gravitational waves, could also give rise to superconductivity, which is the subject of Pais's next patent in 2018. He goes on to say that artificially generated high-energy electromagnetic fields could interact strongly with a local vacuum energy state, which he explains can lead to inducing fluctuations in all kinds of quantum fields, not just electromagnetic fields. He goes on to say, Matter is confined energy, bound within fields, and may be thought of as a spectrum of different vibrational and possibly gyrational frequencies of the vacuum energy state. He goes on, If we perform a thought experiment, we can observe that the coupling of high-frequency spin with high-frequency vibration, especially for rapidly accelerated spin vibration, of an electrically charged system or object that puts every point on the boundary of the object in a state of coherent superposition, thereby inducing a macroscopic quantum phenomenon. Gravitational waves and superconductivity are examples of such macroscopic quantum phenomenon. Pais quotes his own paper, the high-energy electromagnetic field generator published in the International Journal of Space Science and Engineering, where he says the inventor discusses the possibility of inertial or gravitational mass reduction using high-energy electromagnetic fields, whereby high-frequency accelerated vibration and or high-frequency accelerated spin of electrically charged systems can lead to a local vacuum state polarization. Energy flux values in excess of 1,033 watts per meter squared are feasible, 
with corresponding energy densities in excess of 1025 joules per metre cubed. In this manner, the local space-time energy density is modified. These systems would be strategically placed in an intergalactic craft. In other words, you can shield yourself from the effects of gravity and inertia by spinning and vibrating electrically charged systems at very high speed, by generating very high energy electromagnetic waves that interact with a quantum vacuum. This interaction with a quantum vacuum causes the power of the electromagnetic waves to be amplified by drawing on the energy of the quantum vacuum. You get much more out than you put in. The patent claims the device can be used for spacecraft propulsion, asteroid deflection and disruption, communication through solid objects, and room temperature superconductivity using special wiring, which he goes into in much detail. Oh, and he also writes that it could be used to build a planet destroyer. This is not a Death Star that fires a beam, but if you put four high-frequency gravitational wave generators at equal distance around the world, he explains that you could generate enough power through their interaction that they would distort space-time enough to cause a singularity that would eat the world. On a more cheerful note, he claims that you can also use high-frequency gravitational waves to make nuclear fusion energy generators. He goes on to talk about gravitational wave imaging technologies that could perform geological surveying deep underground. So it's using vibrating charged cavities to generate gravitational waves to be used for many exciting things. Surely, shielding the effects of gravity and inertia by temporarily reducing the effects of mass would also be incredibly useful on Earth for moving things around with an anti-gravity-like effect. The first practical step would surely be to build the reverse version of this device in order to detect high-frequency gravitational waves. Curiously, detection was not one of the applications listed in the patent. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. On the same sort of direction, the Alcubierre warp drive would also allow faster-than-light travel using the physics of relativity. And what about the EM inertialist drive that NASA tested? An anti-gravity. In 2015, I spoke with Professor Geraint Lewis. Geraint Lewis is a professor of astrophysics at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy at the University of Sydney. So we've only really started to scratch the surface with regards to the mathematics of Einstein's theory. It's notoriously difficult. One of the things that people have been finding is that there are seemingly impossible aspects to the universe which are hidden away inside that theory. One of them is something known as the Alcubierre warp drive. And uh, this is a, a way of bending space and time to allow us to travel to the universe at any speed we want to. So 
I've read a little bit about it. Does that actually compress space in front and expand it behind? Yes, it's it's just like out of science fiction. Effectively, what you do is you squeeze the space in front, you expand the space behind, and that way you travel through the universe, basically riding on a bubble of space. And what is physically required to build such a device? Ah, that's the tricky part. While we can understand the equations of relativity in terms of space and time, it does tell us that we need materials, materials that have what's known as negative energy to essentially allow us to build such a propulsion unit. So while the mathematics say that we can do this, whether or not we can physically realize such a solution in the universe, we still don't know. We might not know for a few hundred years. Do we know of anything that has negative energy? Well, we do. We do. In fact, the vacuum itself, all the vacuum around us has the property of negative energy. So all aspects of our universe carries this negative energy around. The problem is, is how you would mine it and condense it and build it into a spacecraft. Because the only thing I've seen with negative energy is things like the Casimir effect with the two metal plates that get pushed together. Yes, yes. So the Casimir effect is basically the the effect of the vacuum having negative energy. We also know that the universe has this cosmological constant term, which is also a negative energy density. We really don't understand the properties of that. Now, it could be that these things exist and it is physically impossible for us to ever mine them. But if we could get that negative energy material into an object, it would be a very different world we would see. Is anybody working on negative energy? There are lots of people trying to work on the theoretical aspects of negative energy, and there are a few people who claim to be building space drives based on negative energy. At the moment, I think the consensus is is that it's still too uh, ethereal a topic to really use in driving spacecraft. But people are trying to understand the properties of the universe on the negative energy aspects. So what would it be like for people using this drive to have the space warp bubble around them and going faster and faster? In fact, could they go faster than light? Yes, they can. It's one of those strange things about relativity. Inside the bubble, light would travel at its normal speed, but the bubble itself would travel faster than light can globally. So inside the bubble, everything is is fine, and the bubble happily tears through the universe. The very interesting thing about the warp bubble is it it is very sci-fi-esque in that there is no inertial issues. So when the bubble accelerates, you don't get squashed against the back wall like strawberry jam. You just sit there floating around. We have found there are problems associated with the bubble, though, in that the bubble tears through the universe at arbitrary high speed. The universe isn't empty. It's, it's filled with little bits of dust and little bits of atoms and radiation. And the bubble would actually act to pick up all of that radiation, and it would all pile up like a bow wave in front of the, the bubble. When you decelerate, then all of that energy is released and if you were going to use the bubble to travel around the universe, you could end up irradiating the people who are waiting there to meet you. So it could become a weapon? It could become a weapon, but I hope that that's an aspect that we would try and solve rather than use it for, you know, negative uses. It might get some military funding, though. Uh, yes, yes. But all weapons started off as positive science at some point, and I'm hoping that... that looking at things like warp drives, will lead to positive solutions. Modern physics is built upon two pillars. You have gravity, uh, described by Einstein's theory on this side, quantum mechanics on the other side, and they do not integrate well together. Clearly, something is missing, and it depends on who you talk to about which side is, is lacking, but it's really felt that a proper integration of these two pillars of modern science together 
will give us a deeper understanding of the workings of the universe. And through that understanding, there will be new technologies, new devices, new iPhones probably. But, but I mean, it, this is every time we've, we've made these kind of advances in understanding the universe, it, it's opened new doors to seeing the way the universe works and then eventually harnessing those processes for use here on Earth. It's been in the news recently again about this EM drive that NASA briefly tested which it's a microwaves in a cavity that's supposedly inertialess drive. Do you know anything about it? I do. I have heard some of the stories. I haven't looked in detail at the actual experiments themselves, but I have read some articles by people who have. The entire issue here is that we are dealing with very delicate experiments where people are picking up absolutely minute amount of forces. And if you were going to say that that force is due to some unknown physical effect or some quantum effect or whatever people want to call on, you better be damn sure that you have ruled out all of the possible normal everyday physical things, a draft, electrical currents here, resistance there. There was the experiment a few years ago where people thought they had seen neutrinos traveling faster than the speed of light loose cable at the end of the day, okay? You'd need to make sure you've ruled out all of those before you can go public and say that we have found something that really is potentially earth-shattering. At the moment, these experiments haven't reached that bar yet. If the experiments start appearing in the literature and people can replicate them, then we know that they're onto something. But often what happens is experiments appear in the literature and people can't replicate them and I'm old enough to remember the entire cold fusion issue of a great hoo-ha in the news that disappears when everyone else tries to redo the experiments. So I'm, I'm going to wait and see. I, I, I love to have an open mind. I love the fact that people are doing experiments, even experiments which are right at the hairy edge. But people still need to remember that you've got to be grounded in physics and science at the end of the day. So is something like anti-gravity possible? Depends on how you define anti-gravity. Can you shield yourself against gravity? Well, the warp bubble is something like that, but it takes an enormous amount of mass, an enormous amount of energy to warp space such that you would, you would have a gravity shield or anti-gravity, etc. It's not beyond the realms of the theory involved, but you know, in practical terms, you would need to harness the powers of suns or multitudes of suns to get that to work. But there are plenty of science fiction writers who have thought about civilizations you know, far greater than ours that would be able to harness the energy of multiple suns and then even galaxies, etc. Then what you could do with that energy would be you know, truly extraordinary. That was Geraint Lewis, Professor of Astrophysics at the Sydney Institute for Astronomy at the University of Sydney. In 2003, Dr Tim Baines reported on the 20th century search for anti-gravity and the strange case of the disappearing researchers. Anti-gravity, is it NASA's best-kept secret or pseudoscience? Well, to answer that question, you're going to have to use your own judgment. But for the next few minutes, I'm going to tell you all we know about it. But... Keep an open mind, because the plot gets very thick indeed. Back in 1992, a Russian physicist called Yevgeny Potkletnov claimed he had found a way to defeat gravity. He was very serious. His experiments and methods were very thorough, and he published his discovery in a reputable international physics journal. Surprisingly, 
no one took much notice. His experiment was quite simple, although demanding in the specifics. He took a superconducting disc and cooled it down to minus 233 degrees Celsius, then levitated it over a strong magnet, then applied alternating electric current to coils surrounding the whole apparatus. The alternating current had to be changing about 100,000 times a second, and this caused the superconducting disc to rotate. Okay. Then, according to Podkletnov, when the disc was spinning at 5,000 revs per minute, the strength of the Earth's gravity immediately above the disc was decreased by 1%. Doesn't sound that impressive, really, until you think that there shouldn't be any effect at all, really. Uh, in fact, current theories about the unification of the forces of gravity and electromagnetism say this shouldn't occur until you hit energies many billions of times greater than that in Podkletnov's laboratory. Four years passed and he tried to publish another paper, but this time Britain's Sunday Telegraph found out beforehand, and they pasted the headline everywhere that Podkletnov had invented the world's first anti-gravity device, though perhaps with somewhat less detail than Podkletnov's original paper. Physicists from all over the place suddenly took notice, although only to rubbish the research and generally criticise the whole thing as pseudoscience. Podkletnov lost his job and disappeared. At the University of Alabama, a theoretical physicist by the name of Ning Li was researching her theory on how to convert electromagnetic fields into gravitational fields. She had quite separately arrived at the same experiment as Potkletnov, only being a theorist, she didn't have a lab in which to test her theories. So, Li contacted Ron Kokzor in NASA's nearby Marshall Space Flight Center. For the next two years, they tried to replicate the gravity generator, but eventually they had to give up and say there was no effect they could measure. However, Coxor admitted that they hadn't truly replicated Podkletnov's experiment. Among other discrepancies, the composition of NASA's superconducting ring was subtly different to the one the Russian used. It was about this time, 1997, that Podkletnov reappeared in his own lab at Moscow State University and offered the special superconductor recipe to the American researchers. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, another physicist at the University of Sheffield, England, is also trying to make a gravity generator. Clive Woods believes there may be an effect to be observed, but is trying to replicate Podkletnov's exact conditions as much as possible. But he isn't doing this alone. He has attracted the support of Britain's military and aerospace company, BAE, who reckon it's worth a gamble. Podkletnov is not supported by major aerospace organisations, but he is still working away in Moscow and claims he has an improved design and is trying to patent his ideas. However, after his dismissal, he has remained cautious and evasive, refusing access to anyone who wants to see his gravity generator, perhaps with good reason. He says the last time he allowed Japanese visitors inside, they tried to bribe technicians into giving away detailed plans. Stranger still, Podkletnov was interviewed by a new scientist in 2002, and when the journalist asked for outside references, the journalist was given an untraceable email address to a Professor Takashi Nakumara at the Toshiba Company in Japan. When Professor Nakumara was pushed for real documents, he disappeared into the Ethernet. And the missing persons list doesn't end there. After leaving NASA and establishing her own lab, Ning Li has been off the radar for a few years. Discovery has found out that she's now associated with a Canadian consulting company in Toronto and is apparently still doing work in the area, having published a paper recently on gravity generation in April 2003. Alas, the subject of that paper was to report, yet again, 
no measurable gravity-changing effect. Back at NASA, Ron Coxaw has finally bit the bullet and forked out US $600,000 to once and for all completely reproduce the experiment first done by Potkletnov in 1992. So far, nothing. But discovery awaits. And even if NASA comes up with nothing again, there's still a queue of physicists in France, Canada, and working for Boeing that want to have a crack. That was Dr. Tim Baines speaking to us from 2003 on the search for practical anti-gravity. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use a voicemail tab on the website. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email and let me know what you think. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, 2XXFM in Canberra, and my local station, 2RDJ, in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.